All right, everyone. So um, we're really lucky to have Dr. Kama Luma, Luma here. He's uh, from UC San Diego, and uh, he has um, a wonderful lecture for us about uh, kind of neuro-ophthalmology stuff, if I'm not mistaken, double vision. He's lectured a lot on uh, the lecture trail. He's known nationally, and we're extremely excited <coughs> to have him here. Thanks, Kama, for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I want to extend my appreciation to Dr. Chakravarti and, and also Austin Kinney for giving me this opportunity to talk to you. Uh, as I said, I'm Kamagaluma, and uh, my home is UCSD, and it's glad to, to be here. And uh, in fact, I heard a lecture from BC just a, a few couple months ago, and it's nice to have this cross-pollination between faculty. So I'm going to talk to you today about uh, double vision in the ED, and just uh, a bit about how this lecture came about. Um, as you know, in every ED, academic ED, you'll have uh, someone who's interested in one thing or another. You have your your person who is a cardiac geek, an orthopedics geek, infectious disease geek, and I'm the neurological emergencies geek in my, my shop. Uh, for some strange reason, I love, I love neurological emergencies. Um, um, and what happened is the uh, editors of Rosen's contacted me to write a chapter on double vision. Um, and I was surprised to learn that there was never a chapter like that before. And I was like, oh, double vision, that's like a cardinal presentation. There's no, really, I have to write a new chapter? It's never been done before? So I guess you need to write a new chapter, and um, so I did that, and I was uh, stricken by, <clears throat> again, how there's not a much out there. I mean, we know what causes double vision. I mean, you could name a million etiologies, but uh, the approach to it in the ED and how we approach sorting a patient out, there's nothing, not really much out there. Um, there is some stuff in the neuro-ophthalmology literature, but that requires prisms, and how many of us carry prisms in our pockets? You know? <laughs> yeah, and not even the neurology residents carry prisms in their pockets, you know. Um, so I, I was stricken by that one, uh, one thing, but then I was also stricken by another thing. You know how when you come across a clinical diagnosis in the ED um, and uh, you're paying more attention to it, you start to see it more and more. Uh, I don't know if it's psychological or who knows what that is. Um, but along the lines of not having anything outlining an approach to double vision in our literature, um, you know, I, I remember I was on one day and I have double coverage and I, a colleague of mine was staffing a case a resident staffing case with him, and as a lady with double vision. And I was just, you know, I was writing the chapter at the time, and I looked at their approach, and I saw it was a complete fumble. It's like, you know, it's like, well, how do we approach this? What are we going to do? And um, a lot of what you do when you encounter a patient with double vision, uh, double vision is the, the diplopia dance, right? You're like, God, they have double vision. Is it ophthalmological? Is it neurological? Let me call ophthalmology, see what they think. And they always tell you, right? Uh, Get an orbital CT, but you definitely need to call neurology. And then you call your neurologist. What? You know, you definitely need to call ophthalmology, but get, a, get an MRI with gadolinium first, you know. <laughs> and so you're stuck there in the middle. Uh, and you call the radiologist and they say, you don't know what you're looking for, do you? You know, so. But we'll, we'll start with that. So the objectives are to review the pertinent neuro-ophthalmology neuro and neuroanatomy uh, as pertinent to double vision, understand helpful historical discriminants in a complete double vision, Understand useful physical exam findings. Again, this is not going to be this high-tech neuro-ophthalmology talk. This is going to be very pertinent to what we do in the ED. Uh, and develop, most importantly, develop a strategic approach. And present all this within a kind of strategic framework uh, in which we can work. So first of all, regarding that, you want to think of orienting questions. So someone, Doc, I have double vision. You want to ask some orienting questions to sort of get your grounding and figure out what you need to do. Number one. How fast and how strong? You want to ask about the cadence of onset. Was it sudden onset, maximal <coughs> intensity when it started? Usually things that are sudden onset are neurological. They're ischemic in nature. 
Okay? So anything that's sudden in onset is usually ischemic. If it's gradual, it may be otherwise. Um, also asked about how it's been uh, doing. In other words, uh, double vision that comes and goes and fluctuates over time. Granted, may be a, an impending basilar artery occlusion, uh, but may also, especially if it's a kind of a long arc of getting worse and better, especially with patient fatiguing over time, it may be neuromuscular. Second orienting question. You've got double vision. Does anything hurt? You want to ask about the presence of pain. Um, because pain implies an inflammatory etiology, uh, be it infectious, autoimmune, something inflammatory is going on, and that will help discriminate your differential diagnosis further. Three, what else do you have with your double vision? You want to ask about other associated symptoms. Now, uh, these may be, very importantly, other uh, cranial neur neuropathic symptoms. Uh, do you have facial numbness? Do you have slurred speech? There may be other neurological symptoms. You know, do you have uh, uh, clumsiness, maybe, and leg weakness? And there may be other systemic symptoms, you know. Do you, do you feel short of breath? Do you, do you feel overall weak? Do you have fevers? You know, you want to ask everything, your typical review of systems, okay? And lastly, is there any particular gaze that worsens, obviously, and how? Uh, you get the directionality of the gaze disturbance. Uh, do you have vertical uh, diplopia? That's never good. Diplopia in general is never good, but you know, vertical is even worse. Is it torsional? You want to get that information. Okay, now this will be case-based. Um, you're on in your ED shift, and it's just a weird day because all day today you're going to get people with double vision. And your first case is a 45-year-old female. Doc, I have double vision. Where do you want to start? What do you want to ask her, first of all? When to start? How fast? Right. Oh, the orange. He's very good. Yeah, he's paid attention. This was a test, so someone paid attention. I'm glad one person did. Okay. Well, actually, the first thing you want to ask, and believe me, yeah, yeah, some of the attendings will know this, what do you mean by double vision? Because oftentimes patients, and I've seen this, where the entire axis of the workup changes based on one word, double, versus another word, blurred. Okay? So you want to, double, what do you mean? Well, it's kind of foggy, Doc. Do you see two of everything? No, no, it's just kind of foggy. Do you mean blurred? Oh, yeah, that's what I meant, a blurred. You know? And the same, vice versa. I have blurred vision. Don't throw, blow that off. Oh, yeah, blurred vision, get a slit lamp and fundoscopic, blah, blah, blah. You know, what do you mean by blurred? Well, I see two of everything, Doc. And this has literally happened in the ED, where you go from getting an ophthalmology consult to suddenly ordering an MRI and a neurology consult, you know. But the next thing you want to ask, and, this, uh, and I'm going to present to you strategic questions in a stepwise fashion. The next thing you want to make sure is it's not monocular. You don't want to do a whole complicated, expensive, detailed, multi-hour workup uh, in the ED if it's uh, simply a, a problem that can undergo fundoscopy and referral to ophthalmology, okay? So the first thing you want to ask is, apart from when did it start, blah, 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 do you really mean double vision, you know, uh, is uh, does it go away when you close <coughs> either of your eyes? Um, again, identify monocular vision early. Monocular vision does not go away if the unaffected eye is covered, meaning you can be, if you cover one eye and you're still seeing double, that likely means monocular. There are rare cases of uh, oral monocular double vision, but I won't go into that. That's so rare, uh, I won't even torture you with that. But uh, monocular double vision is related to uh, distortions in the light path from dry eyes, a corneal irregularity, a cataract, lens dislocation, retinal wrinkles, <coughs> very obvious stuff. And uh, it usually will go away, another little trick, uh, with the use of a pinhole, because what, what do pinholes do? They knock off... Um, 
a whole bunch of rays of light, so you get a clean signal on your retina, so to speak. And if you have a refractive uh, problem, oops, what did I do? If you have a refractive uh, problem there, and you just use a pinhole to eliminate that, it'll oftentimes make monocular double vision better. But our patient doesn't have monocular vision, double vision. It's not that easy for us today, is it? She has binocular. Either eye's covered, it goes away. Okay, and this is her. Okay? Yeah, cross-eyed. So if you have someone who's cross-eyed, they have binocular diplopia. Okay? So what do you guys want to do? What do you guys see there? You gotta get out of the way here. Tell me what to do. She's trying to look left or Yeah, she's trying she's, she's trying to look left. Exactly. So she's looking to her left. She's obviously cross-eyed. So we have a problem. What what are we dealing with? Huh? Okay, lateral rectus, I heard. Abducens. Abduct. Yeah, left abducens, okay. Anything else? Uh, what do you want to do? Huh? What should we do? <laughs> ah, very good. You guys are on the ball. I heard someone say proptosis. That's a good thing. Yeah, if you look closely, it's not just a simple left abducens, right? She has some periorbital swelling on that, around that left eye. Okay, you're exactly right. And so, What's boom. Oh, that's right there. Uh, they're equal. Okay. Is yes. Yeah. After a pupillary defect? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we ask our orienting questions. How did this come on suddenly or gra oh, it's gradual and onset? Does it hurt? Yeah, my eye hurts. Yeah, it hurts to move. Any other associated symptoms? Eyelid swelling. She didn't use the word proptosis, she said eyelid swelling. Um, any particular gaze that worsens it? Looking to her left obviously worsens it. She points that out to you. So the next strategic question before you go down the primrose path is to order a, um, I mean, to think about a restrictive mechanical orbitopathy. Okay? Uh, we're trying to orient you because you're, you're thinking, you got orbital CT, MRI with GAD, the brain. What, what am I doing here? You can't get both. The radiologists will laugh at you, you know, and it'll be very expensive, okay? <laughs> they will laugh at you. And your neurology colleagues will laugh at you. Everybody will be laughing at you. So you need to hone things down a little bit. So you want to think about a restrictive mechanical orbitopathy first. Keep it simple. Don't go uh, spending hours in ED when, you know, you have a more clean disposition. Causes of a restrictive mechanical orbitopathy include an orbital myositis from an autoimmune disorder such as Wegener's, giant cell, lupus, you name it. They can do rheumatoid, okay? They're usually steroid responsive. Uh, you can also get a mechanical orbitopathy from an infection, you know, orbital cellulitis and things like that, or a craniofacial mass that's causing restriction of movement. Um, and lastly, Gray's orbitopathy, uh, you know, autoimmune thyroid disease, there's some involvement of the orbital muscles because of co co uh, the antigens in there. Uh, that typically affects the uh, inferior recti. Uh, people have problems looking up. It's typically bilateral. So 85% of people with thyroid disease, Graves orbitopathy will have uh, um, bilateral involvement. So clues you're dealing with a mechanical problem. The lack of other neurological symptoms or signs. We didn't have that with ours. She didn't have any other symptoms. A diplopia exam that is not quite neurological. We had something that looked like a sixth nerve palsy, right? Uh, but to differentiate, 
Um, and again, I like to give all my lectures in an evidence-based uh, fashion. And unfortunately, this is really by a very prominent uh, neuro-ophthalmologist publishing in a very prominent journal that's saying that one way you can differentiate a neuropathic cause of diplopia from a muscular cause is with a cranial nerve palsy, the, uh, there is smooth and progressive impairment of movement towards the weakened muscle. So if she had an abducens palsy trying to look <laughs> to the left, there would be a, a gradual impairment of looking to the left. With an ocular myositis, there's an abrupt restriction of movement away from the affected muscle. So if she has a medial rectus palsy, it'll be like a twang. Boop. Suddenly she has a problem looking left. Okay. I, I don't know the evidence base behind that. It's very hard to, to find some evidence base rationale behind that. But that's what the bigwigs tell us. Okay. Now, we may be lucky and get associated orbital findings like conjunctival injection, chemosis, swelling, discomfort. In our lady, we had uh, swelling. And uh, typically, if you're in this pathway, you're getting a CT or MRI of the orbits. You're focusing on the orbits, and you're, you're focusing on an ophthalmologist. Okay? So again, we've ruled out monocular. You're thinking about a restrictive mechanical orbitopathy. It can be an oral myositis, oral cellulitis, whatever. You're, 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 you're getting some sort of imaging that's involving a CT, MRI of CT of the orbits. Okay? In our shop, likely it will be a CT, right? I don't know if it's, uh, that's uh, like that with you guys here. It's much easier to get a CT of the orbits than it is an MRI. So we'll be getting a CT. And she got one, and she has uh, myositis of the medial rectus causing this diplopia and this swelling. Case number two. 57-year-old diabetic male with hypertension, diabetes. Doc, I have double vision. Okay? And this is his exam. You want to examine the eyes in the uh, eight cardinal uh, directions of gaze. And here he is looking, you know, left upper, top, right upper, so on and so forth, looking in all directions. What do you guys see there? You're examining him. You're doing boom, boom with your flashlight, looking at him. Left corners? Ah, oh, you're on the right pathway. But someone mentioned it. Um, yeah, so third nerve? Why do you guys think it's a third nerve palsy? Diabetic? <laughs> yeah, right. So we see ptosis in the primary position. He's looking straight ahead at us. There's ptosis. A horners will give you ptosis, that's true, but a third nerve palsy will give you ptosis as well. Um, he's looking up here, he can't look medially, can't look up very well. Now, here's a trick, right? This can be confusing, right? He's like, what's, what's wrong with the eye there? Use the corneal light reflex. You can use the corneal light reflex by either using an uh, ophthalmoscope and looking right through it at your patient, you had a dead-on corneal light reflex, or you just get a flashlight, put it next to your head. Uh, but you want to look at this little, little um, divot of light on the cornea, um, and it should be on the same location. Uh, you know, human beings are uh, inherently asymmetric, right? But one part of the body that doesn't tolerate much asymmetry is the ocular axis, right? Then you get double vision, right? Any, any asymmetry there, you're, oh, I see, I see double. I'm not going to drink any more of this beer, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Um, but um, so uh, you check the corneal light reflex, the little light reflex on there from the ambient light in the room or something next to your head, a flashlight or your pen light, uh, it should line up either way. Um, and obviously here, this is his good eye, we would guess. 
and you see where it is there and there, it's not in that position. So this eye has a hypotropia, meaning it's not, it's not looking as, uh, up as much as, the, uh, as the, other, the good eye. Looking laterally, it seems to line up on the same area of the, the sclera, the limbal junction. So laterally is okay. So you can't look medially. That's, dead, that's a dead giveaway. And boy, looking down in that corner, he just really cannot do that. Okay. This is another thing. Again, that corneal light reflex, little ptosis, down and out, and you guys are right. We ask him, how about the onset? This was sudden onset. He's uncomfortable in the left eye. Any other associated symptoms? Nada. No other neurological symptoms, constitutional symptoms, shortness of breath, nada. And looking further away, further away from the patient's lower left in any direction makes it worse. Okay? So, strategically, we know it's not monocular. We don't really have a clear signal of restrictive mechanical overtopathy because we're not getting, uh, we're getting a, a cranial nerve 3 thing. You want to think, is there a single pal uh, palsy of one of the oculomotor cranial nerves? That's your next strategic question in one eye. Now, I could go through all the neuro-ophthalmology, blah, 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 on exam, but we all went to med school. But I think this is a nice reminder of what our uh, oculomotor nerves do. And just to keep it really focused, um, the third nerve owns the eye, right? The third nerve owns the eye. The only thing it doesn't own is lateral gaze. So if you can't look laterally, then you're thinking of the sixth nerve. And it doesn't own looking down towards your nose. The trochlear nerve does that. Anything else, the third nerve does. So when your third nerve's out, you can see, because it takes out this entire field there, there's no um, uh, tension in the upper medial field. It drops down and out, like a boxer, knocked down and out, okay? The third nerve. It's knocked out. If your lateral rectus is out, you have a lateral gaze palsy, and your trochlear is out, you have a palsy. And this is another representation of that. And the third nerve also innervates the levator, the levator palpebrae, and that's why you have your ptosis. It also it, it innervates the ciliary and extractor pupillae muscles, and that's why you have um, dilation of the pupil with a third nerve palsy. The trochlear, again, because if you look at that thing, it pulls the eye into the nose, but also there's an, um, there's an um, intorsion of the eye when it does so. When it's out, the eye pops up a little bit, but extorts, especially when you start looking downward, because that, that's what it does. And that abducens you guys all know about, okay? So here's a third nerve palsy. And um, you get isolated uh, cranial nerve, ocular motor palsies. The most common is cranial nerve 6. Cranial nerve 3 is a close follow, and last is cranial nerve 4. Most of the times, you look at large case series, no one can figure out what causes these. They just show up. People do a bunch of tests. They can't find anything. But the leading causes are demyelinating disease, hypertensive and diabetic vasculopathy, and compression. And each nerve has a predilection to which it's vulnerable. The third nerve, hypertensive and diabetic vasculopathy but also aneurysms, and that's why we get nervous. That's why we get sweaty palms when you see a third nerve palsy, right? Cranial nerve 4, trauma and vascular disease, and aneurysms as well. And cranial nerve 6, because it's such a long nerve, draped on in the base of the, the, the skull base, is very susceptible to any elevation in ICP where there's tension and stretching the tissues or tumor compression, okay? So this is our case on the top there, uh, and this is another case. What's the difference between the two? The people are right. Why do we get nervous about that? What does that mean? If you saw this guy, what do you what are you worried about? 
Huh? Some kind of tumor impinging on the outside of the third premolar. Right, right. So when we see a, uh, any dilated, that's why I'm sure you're working, your tendons will get very nervous. Someone comes in with a dilated pupil, right? Why? Because of this. Um, the rule of the pupil. Basically, the superficial parasympathetics that innervate your sturdier muscles run in the outside of the nerve. It's outside the sheath. And the main nerve bundle, of course, is central to that. Um, any compression, aneurysm, tumor, but we worry about aneurysms, right? Brain tumors, uh, I mean, they can wait a week, a couple of weeks. We, we worry about aneurysm. That's what's going to kill our patient in the next hour or day or three days, you know? Um, but compression causes pupillary dil dilatation. But you see, our, our guy here, um, our case, his pupils are equal, reactive, and whatnot. And let's just be academic and say he actually came in like this. Now, there's a rule of the pupil. And you see this specifically with diabetic third nerve palsies. And the rule of the pupil is because in order to get any compression, you're going to take out your, your pupillary sympathetic, parasympathetics first. The rule of the pupil is an otherwise complete cranial nerve 3 palsy with complete ptosis, much as this gentleman in this picture has, um, completely down and out, but yet a normal pupillary exam essentially rules out compression of the nerve. Microvascular ischemia is typically seen in older adults who have vascular risk factors, such as diabetes, but you also see people in, people in hypertension. It's caused by a microvascular infarction of the blood supply to the nerve, uh, involves the smallest nerves uh, and vessels deep in the nerve, and it presents, it presents an acute isolated palsy of cranial nerve 3, 4, 6, associated with discomfort. That's one of its hallmarks. So you get this retroorbital discomfort in there. It will spare the pupil in the cranial nerve 3 palsy because of those parasympathetic nerve fibers are not affected by the ischemia. It is generally self-limited, and the pain usually resolves after a few days. And that's abundantly clear. So moving forward in our algorithm and thinking about that, now we're thinking, is there an isolated palsy involved? If so, can I blow it off to microvascular disease? Oh, yeah, this is a slam dunk case. I might send this patient out with neuro-ophthalmology follow-up. But now nah, I'm too scared. I'm just going to get an MRA, okay? <laughs> if there's aneurysm, if there's aneurysmal, or meaning you have pupillary involvement, that's a slam dunk. Now you're going to be looking for aneurysms or some compression, but you're going to go for the aneurysm first and get an MRA, CTA, uh, or uh, angiogram. We don't really do much of those anymore because we have such great CT angiograms uh, available to us. And if it's an isolated palsy of 4 or 6, uh, you can expand the skull-based tumors and get an MRA with, with uh, GAD, with gadolinium, through the brainstem. But also check the, uh, the orbits with this uh, fat-suppressed orbital imaging as well. Any questions so far? No? So okay. your, your practice is, even if you're pretty sure it's a microvascular ischemia, you're getting an M MRI? No, I, I don't. You don't. Uh, but, um, and to tell you the truth, mm -hmm. if, you, if you didn't get anything, you'd have an abundance of literature in your favor, just a pile of literature in your favor, um, if, uh, favoring that. But, a lot, you know, we're, we're, um, we're kind of... Right. I always tell my colleagues, my neurology colleagues, my cardiology colleagues, and they say, why did you guys do this? No, emergency medicine physicians, emergency physicians are not um, risk-averse. We, we paralyze people. You know, we, 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 put, we look down their throat when they have epiglottitis because we, we can handle stuff. We're liability-averse, you know, and that's what, uh, you know, and so we oftentimes would do things because of that. Is it worth the risk? Well, what's the cost? And, you know, yeah, a few hours in the ED, but then it's all done. I don't have to play this dance anymore. 
you know. But I typically, because if I document well, uh, and you have a good pupil exam, the rule of pupil holds, uh, send these people out. The literature would abundantly support you on that. Yeah. Case number three, 19-year-old female, comes in, oh, that's a weird case, three weeks. Why'd you wait until now? Uh, I, I forget I asked. Uh, yeah. Forget I asked. It's, uh, I stopped asking a long time ago. So she comes in with three weeks of gradual onset left retroorbital pain and double vision. And that's her exam there. What do you guys think? So again, we're looking at her. Is it monocular? No, she's cross-eyed. We're done. Not monocular. Is there an obvious restric restrictive orbitopathy? Big swollen eye, conjunctival injection, or anything like that? An eye problem, you know? Well, she has retroorbital pain, so maybe, but boy, I don't see that. That's not right on there. How about an isolated cranial nerve finding? Does she have an abducens palsy? Yeah, yeah she can look laterally. Uh, okay, so it's not abducens. Is it uh, trochlear? No. Sort of. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Now, we said she can look laterally. But again, look at the light reflex. Here's where uh, you always want to be careful. Look at this double, here you have a double light reflex. Look laterally here. It, the light reflex is not on the exact same location with these eyes, which looks laterally here. Here, that's obvious, but looking laterally. So she seems to have impaired lateral gaze in that left eye. I'll be darned, because I looked at the corneal light reflex. And she's, not, uh, she's not lined up. Okay, so we do have a mild lateral palsy. Okay, anything else? Trochlear could be. She can't, look yeah. she can't look down there. She can't look up. Which nerve owns looking up and looking medially? Yeah, she's all over the place, right? We have, an, oh, prime position, she has what? Ptosis, right? It's a bunch of stuff going on. So, we knew it's not a, it could be an overtopathy, but boy, she has ptosis. That's not just an eye mechanical problem. That didn't give you ptosis. Um, we asked her, um, Gradual onset, she has retroorbital discomfort. Um, she has patchy facial numbness to the left forehead and cheek. Oh, okay. There's something going on here. And looking any direction makes her diplopia worse. It's not just a single palsy. I don't have a clean cranial nerve 3 palsy here. I don't have a clean abducens palsy. I don't have a clean anything here, but I see elements of everything, right? So next strategic question. And these arrows point to the general location you'll have pathology. Remember the muscles, little nerves they run there. As you get to this orbital apex here, where there's a bunch of stuff together, then you start to get, that's where you can take a hit. Tumor, mass, whatever. And you can get a combined palsy. So the next strategic question I want to ask is, it, is there a diplopia due to a combined palsy of the cranial nerves, three, four, six, in one eye? Okay? The causes are usually because of the way things work in your anatomy, uh, in the causes in the posterior orbit, i.e. the orbital apex or the cavernous sinus. From a cavernous sinus infection, a mass, a tumor, vasculitis. This lady happens to have Tolosa-Hunt syndrome, which is this idiopathic vasculitis of the cavernous sinus. It just shows up, boom, they light up, they get inflamed, uh, affects the cavernous sinus. Usually affects the abducens more prominently because it's free flowing in the cavernous sinus, whereas the three and four are in the wall of the cavernous sinus. Um, and it'll cause facial numbness, patchy facial numbness, because V1 and V2 run through the cavernous sinus as they go out through the superior orbital fissure. Okay? And you can also get them from iatrogenic. There's loads of literature on people in dental clinics giving blocks. 
Oh, good, dentist, I can't see. I see double. Oh, my God, stroke Let's get them off to the ER right away. Uh, but it's because of uh, uh, anesthetics being pulled into the cavernous sinus and taking out your cranial nerves. And, and usually those are loads of literature, <coughs> abducens palsies, multiple palsies uh, in the dental literature. And oral apex syndrome is a more fulminant variety of this, where you have, you know, now you have proptosis, chemosis, conjunctival injection, and you have venous, con blurred vision due to venous congestion. Everything's packed up and they're pressurized. Uh, this guy had a CT and there's uh, something going on there, some inf infiltrative inflammatory process, okay? And um, oral apex syndrome will give you a combination of the palsies, gradual onset, retroorbital pain, you get blurred vision due to venous congestion, and you get the facial numbness again. And you may get much more fulminant, obvious signs, such as exophthalmus, chemosis, and injection. And just like this lady, uh, signs might be dealing with a combined palsy. Is this hybrid signs of palsy? That's what she had, right? She had pitosis. She had a little lateral gaze deviation. Um, and there wasn't a clean, isolated, uh, uh, single palsy involved. And she had facial numbness, and that's a dead giveaway that you're doing something in the orbital apex or cavernous sinus, because now you have V1 and V2 involved. Um, she didn't have as much chemosis, injection, swelling, proptosis, or blurred vision. Our 19-year-old female didn't. But if you have that, it's a slam dunk. So, thinking more logistically again, uh, we've dealt with aneurysms. You're dealing with orbital apex syndrome. Again, you're going to get a contrast-enhanced MRI or CT of the orbits. Again, since it's hard for many of us to get an MRI, we'll likely be doing, we're still in CT ther uh, uh, territory, CT of the orbits with contrast, okay? 71-year-old female, this is case number four. 71-year-old female presents with sudden onset double vision. Boom. What do you guys see there? Eight cardinal directions of gaze. Is it monocular? Uh, heck no, it's not monocular. She's cross-eyed. Uh, is there an obvious restrictive mechanical overtopathy pattern? I mean, it could be. Usually it's, uh, we can get clean. How about this? Is this a clean cranial nerve? Yeah, so we know. Uh, something's, something bad's going on, right? It's not a clean, isolated cranial nerve finding, uh, oculomotor cranial nerve finding, right? What are we seeing there? So she's, uh, yeah, so she's looking up into her right. She can't, she, the other eye doesn't follow. Looks left, oh, it's there, okay. Looking in the midfield, it just doesn't follow. It won't adduct. Looking down, oh, we have some movement here. <coughs> Again, she seems to, that left eye seems to be the problem. Oh, gee, all our patients have left eye problems today. What's going on? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. Something's in the water. Maybe they went to see a James Cameron movie, a 3D movie or something. We need to, yeah, it's a notify the CDC. So she cannot look medially. <coughs> now, what cranial nerve owns medial movement? Three. And are we seeing a three here? No. Something, something deeper is going on, right? So we have to ask is it due to a neuroaxial process involving the brainstem? This lady had an infarction in the left medial longitudinal fasciculus and had an intranuclear ophthalmoplegia. So signs of a neuroaxial causes of diplopia are skew deviation, meaning vertical diplopia, um, so implies a brainstem lesion. 
Multiple sclerosis will cause an intranuclear ophthalmoplegia again. Okay, you all remember from med school, but uh, because it's involved and they, they cannot look, um, uh, it coordinates movement uh, with uh, con con uh, conjugate eye movements and they won't medially adduct. However, in conversions, which uses a different neurological pathway, they can converge and look, but asking to look with their gaze, they won't be able to medially adduct, okay? And with multiple sclerosis, it can be a clinically isolated syndrome, okay? Very frequent. Other causes of neuroaxial, um, uh, causes of diplopia include impending basal occlusion, uh, and there are case reports, a lot of them out there, where people had this fluctuating diplopia, and then boom, went on to be locked in or very sick from a stroke. Oftentimes, they will have nausea and vertigo and slurred speech with that, but you can have isolated their case reports and numerous uh, of diplopia being just an isolated presentation. An ophthalmoplegic migraine can cause diplopia. A brainstem lacuna stroke. I won't torture you with all these, oops, all these stroke syndromes, but uh, there are a whole uh, slew of well-defined stroke symptoms that cause cranial nerve palsies and other associated neurological symptoms that are cranial, okay? So clues you're dealing with the neural process, much like Our Lady. Uh, we don't have a clean oculomotor palsy. We don't even have a combination of palsies we can tag this onto. Um, so that brought her uh, a brainstem issue. And uh, it may be associated with other non-oculomotor neuro neurological signs, like neighborhood signs. She didn't have much of that. She had an isolated hit to her MLF. Uh, but people may have other things that give things away, like facial numbness, as you see, all these other uh, brainstem um, symptoms. This now, now we're out of the CT realm, we're in MRI territory. Um, you can get a CTA, but you're, you're, you're going to need an MRI with DWI to really get at these. And you'll be talking to neurology for these. Okay? So whenever you have something that implies a neuroaxial problem, you're getting an MRI. Sometimes uh, with, uh, with gadolinium, with high-res cuts through the brainstem. If you have signs of meningitis, you may want to consider an LP with that. Case number five, 42-year-old male, history of drug abuse, migraines. He presents with three days of double vision. Okay? This is going to be easy. Gradual onset. No pain. Oh, done, nothing hurts, Doc. I just have double vision. It's really weird, Doc. Ask him about associated symptoms. Oh, a whole bucket opens up. He's like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Okay, wait, run this by me again. He has dry mouth. He's feeling weak in the shoulders. He has slurred speech now. He didn't, he didn't mention that to triage nurse because double vision was his main thing, right? That's how it works in emergency medicine, right? Why are you here? Well, it's this, but I also have this and this and this, but I didn't mention that because I'm really here for this, you know? So he has dry mouth, feeling weak in the shoulders, slurred speech, dysphagia. You ask him any particular gaze that worsens it, he says looking laterally in either direction. And you just look at him, and there he is. Yeah. Are you shooting again? Oh, yeah, I yeah. am. What are you using? I'm using heroin. Yeah, what are we dealing with here? Yeah. Louder? What? Botulism. Right, right. So, again, if uh, this guy clearly is not a mechanical problem in the eye, we're not dealing with a single palsy of cranial nerve 3. We, we ask orienting questions. We've got a whole lot of associated symptoms that pull us away from the neuroaxis and into a more diffuse process. Um, and so you want to ask, is this due to a diffuse neuropathic syndrome involving the brainstem or related cranial nerves? Botulism is what this guy had. Uh, he had wound botulism. 
which acts similar to foodborne botulism, the same thing. Um, the toxin inhibits release of acetylcholine at the cholinergic synapses and presynaptic myoneural junctions. You can also have Miller-Fisher syndrome, which will present with uh, isolated cranial nerve abnormalities uh, due to autoantibodies that develop to cranial nerve uh, ganglicides. Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is due to meta metabolically induced lesions in the pontine tegmentum and abducens nucleus and ocular motor nucleus. These present with very diffuse symptoms, some of which the, uh, diplopia can be a most prominent symptom, but you want to get other things. Botulism, the three Ds, diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia. I see double, I can't stir speech, and I can't swallow. Boom, that's botulism until proven otherwise, okay? Miller-Fisher syndrome, you have ophthalmoplegia, but you have ataxia. And you have this, oh, this guy has double vision, and he's kind of stumbling around, and he doesn't have reflexes, you know? That's just a weird part of the syndrome. Those are, that's what it's pathognomonic for. <coughs> Wernicke's encephalopathy may be more obvious. You have your alcoholic who has nystagmus with his uh, ophthalmoplegia. He's kind of walking unsteadily, a little goofy, altered mental status. And they may be, have risk factors of nutritional deficiency. You may see this in um, bariatric surgery patients, too. It's been documented. Wernicke's encephalopathy. Okay? And we know how to treat these. We know what to do for these. I won't dwell on that. So again, you want to pull back. Is this due to a diffuse neuropathic syndrome that happens to be involved in the brainstem, giving me double vision, a most prominent symptom that this patient is presenting with? Um, you can consider uh, an MRI, but you can be treating empirically based on what you're clinically suspecting. And this is all very clinical. Wernicke's is clinical. Botulism, clinical. Miller-Fisher, clinical. These are all clinical diagnoses. You depend on you and not an MRI or anything else to diagnose. You can do an LP for Miller-Fisher. Protein levels go up but otherwise, not much else you can do. Last case, a 59-year-old man with prior thyroid disease presents with double vision. And here he is. Oh, it's not monocular. I know that. I don't see eyelid swelling, conjunctival injection, anything like that. So it's not a mechanical problem. I mean, I guess it could be. Is it a mechanical problem? Do mechanical problems give you ptosis? Mm. Yeah. Okay, so it's not a mechanical problem. Isolated cranial nerve. Is it six? No, six doesn't give you ptosis. Does he have a lateral gaze palsy anywhere? No, he's, he's okay. I mean, uh, yeah, no, not really. If anything, he has a medial gaze palsy. Uh, trochlear. Uh, trochlear doesn't give you this. I mean, I guess he could. Those corneal light reflexes line up pretty well. Third nerve? Could be a ptosis. Does he have a third nerve? No, he has ptosis. That should be down and out, right? I mean, I guess it could be, but that no, should be down and out in that position. And he's looking up. This is a WTF patient. It's like, what, what's going on? Okay. And when you have a WTF patient, uh, we ask this guy. Uh, it's gradual onset, no pain. He has proximal muscle weakness. And uh, anything make it worse? No, but the longer I look in any particular direction, the worse it becomes, doctor. When I rest, it's okay. It's better. But if you have me look at any, it just gets worse, doc. What are we dealing with here? Oh, you guys are good. Yes, exactly. So if it's none of the above, and it's a WTF patient, 
you're thinking neuromuscular process. Now, of course, he could have tick paralysis, right? So you want to check him for ticks, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, but yeah, tick paralysis present like that? No, seriously, you do want to check him for ticks, you know? You will save the day if you pull that tick off and three hours later he's walking out of the ER, you know? Uh, no, I'm kidding you not, you know? Uh, but uh, it would be myasthenia gravis or some other weird neuromuscular thing. Nothing we need to get too excited about. We just need to consult neurology and uh, we'd re-stratify from there on. And uh, my esteem gravis diplopia fluctuates, as you guys got on, it fluctuates over time. Worse is the patient fatigues. Usually worse than the end of the day when they're fatigued generally or they do stuff with their eyes. Uh, looking up makes it even worse. They get more tired. Okay, it's associated with unilateral or bilateral ptosis for the same reason. Weakness at forced eyelid closure. So now they're weak and they have generalized muscle weakness. And then they have associated symptoms, which is somewhat ominous, of shortness of breath and difficulty swallowing. You want to think about your ventilatory issues when you're getting that history out of them. But um, many a patient will present with just isolated diplopia, and that's all you'll have. Because again, diplopia is the most, when you see double, the, neuro, the optical axis doesn't tolerate any asymmetry, and you'll, you'll see double the hair, drop of a hat, and people will come in because of that. Uh, Luckily for us, uh, you know, we live in the modern era in, in an urban area, and a lot of the patients will already be diagnosed for us. They'll say, you look on the triage sheet and you'll see myasthenia gravis, and they'll have diplopia, and it's all done for us. But you never know, right? And uh, one thing you can do, if there's any doubt, is do the ice test, because ice um, inhibits the acetylcholine esterase and increases the, uh, the levels of acetylcholine in the, uh, in the uh, myoneural junctions. Put an ice on for just five minutes, and if your ptosis or diplopia resolve, usually your ptosis will resolve, then you know you've got myasthenia. And that's been shown to be a relatively sensitive test for that. And cheap, cheaper than Tenslon, and much less risky. Okay? Okay. So, and if you're beyond that, uh, consider other diagnoses. Don't call me. Okay? <laughs> Now, you can pre-stratify your differential in the last couple of slides here. Um, again, using these questions again. Again, sudden onset implies a vascular ischemic event, whereas uh, not gradual onset, non-vascular. If there's pain or discomfort, it stratifies as inflammatory, non-inflammatory. And then from there on, as you go down there, you can stratify by orbital versus cranial and get at your field of diagnosis you're going to follow up on. Okay? With that, I'll take any questions you guys may have. Anything at all? No questions? Okay. Well, great. Thank you very much.
that it's not a stroke and it's more likely bells. But if you don't, since 80% of people normally have this. Right, yeah, and I'm not, uh, I know what you're talking about. And um, ophthalmology guys used a lot in neuro-ophthalmology, but uh, I'm not sure of the prospective literature on whether you can uh, use that. Exactly. Sometimes our neurologists come down with a stroke and they'll be like, oh, it's clearly bells phenomenon. I don't think I know. But I don't know that they even know what they're talking about. Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly.